I'm just going to tell you the truth. I hate it when people tell me what to do. If you want to push my button, that's the way to do it. Be bossy, be instructive, and watch what happens. And there's another thing that pushes my button. That's sermons that tell you what to do and how to behave and what to think. They're called in fancy language exhortations, but behind the preacher's back we just say, he was preachy. Some uh, years ago at one of our general conventions, one of my uh, colleagues had been invited to preach during the noonday Eucharist and he got up in front of the whole general convention and rather grandly said, uh, here today I'm going to take on the role of a prophet. And I blurted it out before I could think and I said, oh please don't. But he did. And you know the result. You don't care enough you don't feel enough, you don't do enough, you've got to do better. And I was furious. Now, what do you think of today's second reading from the book of Romans? There, the Apostle Paul tells us what to do. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. You are to be aware and alert and in touch with life. You are to put away all sin in your life. You are not to misbehave, but you must make no allowance for selfish desires in your life. Pow, 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 and I've had enough. What I think is beneath this issue of, of, of bossiness, this issue of not liking, for me at least, is the question, why should I do what you tell me? Why should I love my neighbor as myself? Why is it I should put away all my sinful desires when everyone else seems to be uh, catering to their sinful desires? What's the motivation? What's the reason? What's the empowerment that this passage from Romans might have for us? Well, I think there are several, and the first is the issue of love. Love your neighbor as yourself. As you know, easier said than done, particularly if your neighbor is despicable. I think the problem comes that when we use the word love, we often mean a kind of warm, fuzzy feeling or a desire for something. It's an emotional affair for us. But when the scriptures talk about love, it has very little, if anything, to do with feelings. 
Love in the Bible is action. Action. Now here, here's a classic definition of this biblical sort of love. Love is acting towards others in such a way that you set them free to be who God made them. Get it? Action. Love is acting towards others so that you set them free to be who God made them to be. So synonyms for love in the scriptural sense would be words like steadfastness, faithfulness, and especially sacrifice. When we're talking about this kind of love, it's always a matter of giving a little bit of ourselves, and sometimes all of ourselves, away for the benefit of someone else. I have a grandson who is about five years old. One of my routines every night is about five o'clock. I sit down and watch the news, and my wife has prepared for me a tray of uh, cut-up raw vegetables, and I love to eat those things. And when my grandson comes, he simply perches on my lap and freely helps himself to my cucumbers. He doesn't ask. He doesn't say thank you. He just takes. And I'm delighted. I'm certainly willing to share my cucumbers with my grandson. A little bit, a tiny bit of sacrifice. Well, the great example, the universal, the cosmic form of this love is Jesus' death on the cross, of course. There on the cross, God acting in and through Jesus embraces and makes his own all the pain and perplexity and tragedy and evil of humanity, and we are set free. This is how much God is committed to us. How far would God go to love us? How much is God steadfast in his love towards us? And the cross says, there is no limit. There is no limit. It is endless and eternal. That's sacrificial love. That's the love of Christ. Now, for any of you who have raised children or are aware of your own life, you would know that love does not come naturally. It has to be nurtured. You have to prompt it. Somewhere along the line, I was in a biology class, and everyone in the class was given a couple of seeds of beans, and we were to plant them and watch what happened and report on it. And one of the things I noticed is that I placed my bean plants on a bookcase beside a window, and I observed that every time there was a bright sun, the bean plant would turn towards the sun. 
If we're going to love in the way that Jesus asks us to love, to love our neighbor as ourselves, we're asked to always be in the process of turning toward Jesus, always focusing on Jesus. And that's when the light begins to dawn. Well, the second word is light. Love and light. So uh, Paul writes, the, the, the darkness is passing away and the dawn is near at hand. Metaphoric ways of talking about how the death and resurrection of Jesus have caused a new era, a new reality, an alternate world to begin to break into our lives. It's a way of saying that God is bringing light into our lives by being active. That God acts in the human story, in the story of the church, the story of this diocese, this congregation, and in your individual stories. God is active. This, it seems to me, is almost a unique element of Christianity. That our God rolls up sleeves and works on our behalf to love us and to bless us. And that changes everything. It's the writer of 1 John who makes a very profound comment when he says, we love because God first loved us. We're not able to love. We're not able to live in the light unless we have been loved and have been given light. That's the motivation behind this certain kind of lifestyle that Paul talks about. And, and today's passage is just a snippet. This kind of stuff goes on for three chapters. Do this, don't do that. And it becomes helpful and real when we know that we are loved and we are enlightened. Now, as always, the turning point for this is when we are baptized. That's that event in time and space when something happened, when God acted decisively for you and for me. Now, I was baptized as an infant, so I don't remember it, but I know very well where I was baptized. I could describe what it looked like. I know the man who baptized me. I could tell you all about him. This is a real thing. When divine love and light entered into my life. In baptism, we are given, as the creed puts it, we'll say it in a few minutes, the remission of sins. That means that all that has separate us, separated us from God is wiped away and God takes us and embraces us and says, you're mine and I'm going to unite you to the death and resurrection of Jesus and I'm going to give you a full dose of the presence of the risen Christ. Now this is heavy stuff. 
When we are baptized, that's when we become Christians. This is the thing that the catechism tells us is necessary for salvation. It allows us entry into the new world. And it's completed every time we celebrate the Eucharist. Every time we celebrate the Eucharist. One of the high points of that liturgy, notice this morning, there, there, there's the Eucharistic prayer, and then there is the Lord's Prayer that sums up all prayer. And then, like the body of Christ, the wafer, the bread is broken. And then the celebrant holds up the bread and cup and says, the gifts of God for the people of God. That's the invitation to the baptized. Come on up and meet Jesus again. Take in the love. Take in the light. Be transformed. And let your life shine forth. Years ago, I uh, baptized a little girl. And, you know, uh, the heart of the baptism, of course, is the application of water. But there are other rituals that uh, help explicate what baptism is about. And in that particular congregation, one of those was the baptismal candidate was given a, a little white um, vestment-like affair to talk about the gift of righteousness. And there was a candle given, we do that here, to represent the light of Christ. And then there's a ceremony called the chrismation where the, the, the priest takes holy oil, it's fragrant oil, has balsam in it, holy oil that has been, baptized, that has been blessed by the bishop and with his or her thumb marks on the person's head and it says, you have been anointed with the Holy Spirit and marked with the cross of Christ forever. So that's what happened that Sunday. The next Sunday, her mother came back to me and she said, you know, she hasn't allowed me to wash her face all week. She's afraid that she will lose her cross. Ten years old. And she had it. She understood it. She grasped it. How about you?